Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Green Squad Chats. I'm James Lascara, and this morning we are going to talk about the use of creative finance and leverage, how we've used the principles of leverage and creative finance in building our portfolios to increase our real estate reach and ultimately build better business practices. I think it's important to first define what creative finance and what leverage really means. Uh, to me, creative finance means simply the, the application of using other people's money to fund a portion or the entirety of one of your projects, in our case, mostly real estate projects. And then leverage is, it can be, those are used in concert with each other, but leverage can also be institutional financing that simply magnifies whatever the result is already going to be in your project. So if your project has a positive ROI, use of a lot of leverage is going to amplify the result higher. Use of leverage, if you're going to experience a negative ROI, then you're going to experience that detriment more significantly. That's going to be a worse day for you than a bad day. So I think that's that's how I define it. I'm curious to hear what you guys think. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head with using other people's money or or using other sources of equity, maybe to find and fund to fund deals, to, to fund business opportunities. Uh, and just like you said, the returns become magnified when you are not using your own money, right? When you're not having to pay twice for it. Uh, or in some cases, uh, you know, there are creative ways to move equity around from one project or one opportunity to another. So a lot of different ways to do it. We bought our primary home in 2014 and we did some renovations right when we moved in, which caused, we forced some equity, right? Uh, we increased the value of the house by doing work and we had a decent amount of equity. We then took a home equity line of credit, HELOC, against our primary home, which allowed us to essentially write a check that we used as the down payment on the purchase of an investment property. That investment property was vacant and needed a lot of work. And so we took a hard money loan uh, which for those that aren't familiar would be somebody I don't know that's loaning me money typically at a higher interest rate. And that hard money loan was used to pay for the renovations on the investment property. At the same time, the mortgage on the investment property was being paid by me, the buyer, to the seller through what's called a seller carried note or seller carried financing. So the seller was the bank and we paid them, uh, I, I still remember the number, $1,812 a month and an interest only note for the balance uh, that, uh, that wasn't covered by our down payment. Once the hard money loan funded all the renovations, we put tenants in place and we increased the value of the property by, by doing this work, by getting it rented. And once all the units were rented out, the property value had gone up significantly over the purchase price. And we were able to go to a traditional lender, a bank and take out uh, a loan against the property. Uh, and we did a cash out refinance where we paid off uh, the seller, uh, the seller carried note that we still had. We paid off the hard money loan and we took cash back out of the deal to cover the down payment that we had initially put in. So that's a way where we combined kind of a few different methods. Awesome. Are you able to share more specifics on how much equity that generated with the value add strategy and, and really uh, maybe how that increased your overall ROI from the cash you had involved? Uh, yeah, we can talk some big round numbers. So uh, purchase price of the home of the uh, the uh, part it was a small apartment complex. So the purchase price of the apartment complex was four hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and my partner and I put down twenty five percent 
so 25%, I don't have all the numbers in front of me, 25% is probably 112,000. So I probably took a $60,000 uh, chunk out of my home equity line of credit. My partner did the same. And then the sellers were carrying that, you know, $330,000 or so, $337,000 on the note. Uh, I forget how much we borrowed from the hard money lender, probably a couple hundred thousand dollars. That funds the rehab. And then we get to a functional apartment complex, which is valued in excess of $1 million. So I used $60,000 of my money-ish. My partner does the same. Uh, and again, big round numbers we wind up with uh, after we take a note on the property for uh, probably almost $600,000. We pay off all the debt um, that we've accrued on the property. So the hard money lender, the seller, and then we're able to recoup almost all of our initial investment as well. Uh, and then as the property became more and more successful, we've got no more money and you know, our money is essentially out of the deal. Our returns become infinite and rents are going up. Our mortgage is staying the same. Uh, and so our return on investment uh, is just going through the roof uh, as we make money on a monthly basis. Is that, is that kind of what you're looking for, James? Yeah, that's awesome. And I think that kind of reminds me that probably the ultimate hack, if you can, maybe I shouldn't say hack, maybe I should say strategy. the ultimate strategy if you can get the debt right and plan it well is really the burr model you know if you're if you're able to use some leverage to do value add to a property and then you do a cash out refinance with the higher appraised value where you're getting most or all of your initial capital back the ri becomes infinity because textbook way to do it is to leave no money in the deal ideally sometimes that doesn't actually work out like it, i know in tampa Doing a textbook burr and leaving no money in the deal is nearly impossible. I don't love the word impossible, but it's very challenging to to hit that. So you may end up leaving some money in the deal, which is still fine. Just plan for that. Yeah, and and for anybody that, that might not understand how we're coming up with how we're using this term return on investment. In this case, uh, return on investment is the uh, the net income that you're generating from an investment divided by your amount of investment, your capital invested in that deal, and so. Uh, the reason we're coming up with infinite in this uh, model, James is talking about if you can pull all of your capital out of a deal, out of a property, um, you wind up dividing by zero, right? You're making money, you have no capital in, and your return goes to infinity. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think you can do that, right? Like I, somewhere in my math career, you can't divide by zero. Can't do it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure yeah, you it's, can. It's probably a misapplication of. <laughs> yeah, my our third grade math teachers would be upset yeah. with us for yeah. this. Uh, but your return, how about your return approaches infinity? Yeah. No, I, I I only brought that up because a couple things that from your story is one, having alternative sources of financing outside of just having to go to your mortgage broker or a bank and applying for a traditional loan, right? Having those alternatives, it gives you way more options. And so having those options makes you resilient to different types of market situations, um, to, you know, negotiations, right? You just, when you have those options, um, you're in a better position to flex, adapt and keep moving forward. And then two, in your example, Tom, if you take, I was thinking about it, you actually had no money in the deal from the get-go because of your own money, because really you took a home equity line of credit. So your money is actually stored as equity inside of that house. The home equity line of credit is borrowing against that house. So that's actually a loan so in reality, you had no money ever, none of your own money ever in the deal. 
your money was still working inside your primary home to like support the asset, right? Yeah, great point. Yeah, somebody could see where you can get really creative having alternative sources. Uh, it really makes yep. you resilient. Thanks for that point. I did a pretty scaled down version of the story. I mean, this was a years long process. We actually also used from another property we owned a, a fourplex. We actually took a line of credit against that property as well. Used some of that money in the deal. We opened up a, a um, you know, we went to a major uh, home improvement store. Uh, opened up a credit card where we had interest free for like 18 months, paid for most of the supplies with that, right? So there are, to, to your point, Brandon, there are so many different ways to do this and different ways to obtain leverage. I think downside risk is definitely something worth bringing up. As we look at the past three years, we've experienced unprecedented market growth. Like at, in Tampa, we've seen very unprecedented growth in the last few years. And so that can kind of possibly fool you into thinking you're better than you are. So I think there's two things that I look for just a second ago. We brought up, hey, you had no money in the deal. I have done that where I end up exiting a project and I had no money in the deal. When that is the case, uh, I make sure there are two things. One, I'm buying deep. I have to definitely get it at a discount from where anyone else on the market would have, would have gotten it. We could go into so many strategies about how you do that, sourcing an off market, just doing a good negotiation. But the principle is you have to buy it deep. So you're closing with instant equity. That's number one. And the second thing is you want to make sure you're getting debt at the right terms. If you're paying 18% on your debt versus 4%, that can really blow out your project, especially in some kind of market downturn where you're stuck with an 18% or some high interest holding costs. That's going to crush you and you're going to be underwater and you're going to have a bad time. So those are two things I personally look for, uh, you know, buying at a discount and then getting debt at the right interest rate and the right terms. If you guys are okay with it, I can pivot to a project where I made over a hundred grand and I had no, none of my own money and my ROI was infinity. If you guys want to go over that real quick. Cool. So uh, I'll make this story real short. So there was a property a couple blocks away from me. I kept noticing it was going on and off the market, um, kept being traded around. I think wholesalers were trying to get it at a price. It was just too high to move off market. So I saw it go back and forth on and off the market probably six times and Finally, I came in, offered a pretty low number, but my value proposition is I could close really fast, which is something they wanted. So I think I closed in 10 days and the acquisition price was a little under 300 grand, borrowed the entirety of the 300 grand from private money. And so uh, we were going to fund the rehab. I had two strategies with it. We could rehab the entirety of it and then sell it as a flip. And the other strategy was we could rezone the land and sell it as two two parcels. And so uh, both worked. We definitely got it at a significant discount, probably instantly 40 grand of equity just in buying the deal. And about a week later, after we bought the deal, we got under contract to sell it to a builder who all they needed to do was rezone the land. So they were going to do the rezone for us. And that was fine because they have extensive experience doing that. And our contract price was 135 grand more than we bought it for. So Entered the project around 300 grand, exited the project seven or eight months later for 435,000. Once we back out what I paid my private lenders for the ability to borrow that 300 and closing costs, uh, I basically made a, a little over a hundred grand or so. The buying at a discount really helped me there, but then also getting interest where my private lenders felt they were compensated at adequately. They were compensated fairly. And then that allowed me to. Um, really pursue both strategies. The one we ended up doing was by far the most profitable. 
So I would have had money in the deal if we had gone the flip option, but we had so much uh, downside risk mitigation because their deposit went hard. I think their deposit was $20,000 or something. Their deposit went hard immediately when we signed the contract for closing in seven months. So I thought that was pretty good risk protection. So if they backed out at the closing table, we had that to recoup some of the interest we had incurred. That was a good example of kind of stacking a few different things. And then also different strategies to make sure whichever one works is, is going to be profitable. James, you, you hit on something that, you know, from I think back over the last 20 years of, of flying aircraft and I, I, I've always instructed and, and, and told my teams, you always have to give yourself an out. And that's exactly what you're talking about. Giving yourself an out, managing the downside risk. Uh, yeah, let's go hard in the paint. Let's, let's, let's aggressively pursue this opportunity and we need to have an out. Uh, so that we uh, we still wind up with a good outcome, no matter how the deal goes. Yeah, different strategies. You're really good at this, James. Um, and and this wasn't the only deal that I know that when you go into a deal, you go into it with multiple strategies a- as a way to mitigate the risk. Because guess what? Life gets a vote. Unexpected things could happen. You know that. So you're planning up front bakes in options, bakes in resilience. So I have a creative source of financing that I use. It's an alternative source of financing. It actually speaks to the risk, right? Wanting to limit your downside risk. And so as a way to do that, I have a source of alternative financing where the underlying asset asset is completely stable with contractual guarantees. It's my whole life insurance. I'll, I'll save everybody the, uh, um, I'm not the suspense, right? It's my whole life insurance contracts. But as the cash value or equity for us real estate investors, as it grows inside the, the policy, it's got contractual guarantees that it will always continue growing, that it does not ever decrease, it's non-volatile, and it's untied to all of the market. And so by leveraging that as a source of financing, because you can contractually, again, contractually guarantee that you can borrow against it, whatever the cash value is. I like to use that to borrow against um, for the portions of real estate deals or other financing where I would otherwise have to put my you know, cash or savings account money into. And by using that as a source of financing with the underlying asset being so conservative and guaranteed, it provides a hedge that I know that that, va- that asset's never going to decrease in value. Um, the, the, the loan terms are unmatched really because there are you borrow against the policy and then there are no uh, terms, right? It's up to me, the borrower then to pay it back on my terms, which you, sh- I, you should always have a strategy to pay it back. But the point being the life insurance company doesn't set those terms. Um, they charge interest. The interest will accumulate if you don't pay it back, which is why you have to have strategy to pay it back. But you determine when and how you pay it back. And so for me, that is an alternative financing source for resilience. Um, it's just another option, right? That, that I can tap into and it provides some, some risk mitigation because of the safety of the underlying asset. Oh, I love that, Brandon. Yeah. I think having sources to accomplish this is really important. And the more options you can stack, it just builds resilience into your plan. So whether that's a HELOC that you can draw from, but maybe you closed on it, but you, you know, you keep that in reserve. For me, it's private debt. I love private debt. We did over a million dollars of borrowing and returning private debt in 2022. And we're on track. I got it on a whiteboard somewhere. I'll have to update it. I, I think we did a couple in the last few weeks and I haven't updated the whiteboard, but 
you know, I think we'll surpass that this year, which is awesome. And here, here's why I believe in private debt so much. I'm busting it over here. I, I'm working super hard with my team to make sure we're finding projects that are 15%, 20% plus um, annual, excuse me, 15%, 20% plus annualized ROI. And there's a lot of people out there that really favor with the volatile interest rates we're seeing and high yield savings account doing maybe three to 5%. A lot of people out there are totally good with a guaranteed eight-ish percent, 10% or so return. And so I also, I think people like the idea of investing in your project so they can be a part of it. And at the end of the day, private debt, when when people invest uh, private debt through our business or with you guys or whatever, really it's an investment trust. And I think that goes a long way with people. People really like being a part of that from what I've seen. And so getting a guaranteed rate of return that roughly beats a big index fund, people like that when it's an investment trust. I'm looking forward to 2024 and I intend to start uh, doing some private lending. Have either of you guys done it? Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's how I got started in real estate investing back years ago. I didn't even know there was a term for it. I had a buddy come to me and say, hey, we're doing this thing up in Baltimore. Do you, are you interested in loaning 50 grand or 100 grand or whatever it was at the time? I said, yeah, that works. And he gave me a good return, paid it back a year or a year and a half later. And I was like, oh, this seems cool. Not realizing like I would eventually be on the other end of it sure. as a borrower. But, I mean, it works though. It really works because, you know, I had a lender who wanted to do a hundred grand investment maybe three weeks ago. She was like, James, I've, been, I've had this money sitting in a high yield savings account. It's just not really doing what I want it to do for me. You know, can you beat that? I said, well, what's it doing? We'll take a look. And she said, I don't want to know anything about your projects. Like just take the money and do the return. I was like, that's exactly what we do. So we'll, we'll stay in the loop and we'll stay communicating with you, but we'll see you in a year with your return. That's pretty much how it goes. Yeah. So, and, and let's, can we, uh, can we just offer a, a quick 30 second explanation on, on how that would work and why, how that investor's money is, is mitigated, how the downside's mitigated? Yeah. So I think first of all, the, those, I come back to those two things. Like we buy at a discount and we do an extensive analysis to make sure we mitigate our risk. Additionally, I have a stack of different assets that I could liquidate. In the event that project goes poorly, I always invest some of my own money in a project. Um, like the scenario I said, where I had none of my own money involved, the plan for that was to fund the rehab. So, you know, the, the baseline strategy, we plan to put money into it. And so, um, we buy at such a discount and I'm also putting company capital via, you know, via my LLC, which is really my money into a deal so that if the deal goes badly, that affects me and the investors still getting their return. So collateralized by the subject property. Uh, sometimes we do private debt and that's also tied with private equity. The difference is the equity partner shares the risk in the project. So private debt, they get funded first with um, when the project undergoes disposition, you know, you sell it, they get funded first. And then the equity partner, you're splitting the proceeds on a pro rata basis. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, you, you, you talked about some of your strategies to minimize risk at a simple level. And, and if you're going to get into private lending, hard money lending, uh, you certainly want to understand the risks and uh, make sure you understand the contract that you're signing. On a simple level, typically a, a hard money lender or, or a private money lender is going to have a lien on the property. And, and James used the term collateralized. So if the deal were to go sideways or not achieve the desired end state, that lender would get paid uh, by a sale of the property 
or potentially wind up owning the property depending on how that deal is structured. But uh, th that's how the money is is generally secured is that uh, the property is offered as collateral. Yeah, what it, we touched on it a little bit already uh, in these stories, but what I love about the private money lending side is something, you know, kind of James hit on. It's, it's really win-win because I'm looking as a private money um, lender, right? I'm looking for places to park my money, to store my capital that are going to give me um, investment type returns versus uh, savings or storage type returns, right? And so I'm looking for those deals. And as a private money lender, I don't want to lend to anyone I don't know and trust. And so um, sometimes we don't have any deals to put money in because maybe it's already deployed uh, or we just don't know anyone that we know and trust and understand that they're going to put in these risk mitigations that we've been talking about. And so instead of just willy nilly lending to anybody uh, as a private money lender, you actually you have to do some form of underwriting yourself, whether it's underwriting the person in the relationship uh, or maybe you have a bigger team because you do this a lot. So it's kind of like your business. And so you have an underwriter on staff who underwrites deals. Um, but either way, uh, so it's a win for the private money lender. But then at the same time, uh, it provides kind of liquidity to do deals for the developer, for the investor, so that they can go out and find deals and close quickly because they have a ready source of funds uh, outside the traditional lending, outside the banks right. that they can access quickly and which which uh, increases their position in a negotiation to get better deals. And like James said, buy it at that value price. I want to talk too about seller financing and how that's been impactful for uh, some of the projects that we've done. It doesn't always work. It takes the right seller to do it. So, um, you know, somebody who may not need all the capital out of a project or maybe somebody who desperately needs to move um, or they, they, you know, maybe they want to offset any kind of tax liability that comes with the sale. But the past year we've done two seller finance projects. Both were incredibly successful. So one was a flip in St. Pete where the owner carried back at the time I had a, I had a partner on this project. The owner carried back, I think 200 grand out of a 300 grand property. And then we also did, we stacked that with private debt for about 50 grand. And then we funded the remainder with our company funds and the rehab. Uh, we, it wasn't the most banger deal we've ever done. It was around the holidays when there was a market downturn a little bit. There usually is. Um, and we, we only ended up making about 20 grand on that project, but our ROI was buffered up because we had less of our own money involved. But what was cool about that is we, I think the rate that we negotiated on the seller financing was like 3% or 2%. It was a five-year balloon. So we talked about different strategies along the way. If the market downturn was so substantial that we weren't going to make any money on the disposition, we could have simply paid off that 50 grand private debt and carried the note with the seller and turn it into a rental and it would have been profitable and cash flow and that would have been fine. So that was one seller finance deal we did for a flip. And then another was a development deal I did where uh bought the property for half a million dollars. I did I put down 20% down payment, so 100 grand. And then we were getting ready to rezone and go through plans and permits. We we're actually in the rezoning process and we took an off-market offer for 570 about seven months after we acquired the property. And so uh, I did a little Instagram video about this, but my rule of thumb is if I can double my cost basis within a one year prorated timeframe. So for example, 50% increase in six months, then I will always do that deal. So we ended up selling the 
property made 65,000 or so after some costs in seven months. So that hit that goal. And that was only because we had negotiated that $400,000 seller carry back and they wanted to be done with the property in that case. They didn't want to keep holding on to it and incurring headaches and all this stuff. So it worked. Oh, one, one strategy. I'll, I'll share something. I don't want to give away all my, all my secrets, I guess, because, uh, I want to retain some unfair competitive advantage. But one thing that I always try to do that here's a freebie for y'all. If you want to get into seller financing or creative financing, always make two offers. So make your standard offer you would normally make, whether that's cash or normal financing, and then make a seller finance offer. Uh, something I do is sometimes I try to pay them more and then have great terms like a low interest rate. That's a great point. Yeah. So um, as we kind of wrap it up for this week's Green Squad Chats, kind of the moral, a couple morals here, right? Man, we we talked about the resilience that having alternative financing sources provide you. Why? Because of all the options that you have um, to get a deal done that other people who, and these alternative sources, most of them are available to everybody, but a lot of people just don't have experience with it. So a nod to kind of education and, you know, uh, researching some of this stuff for yourself. And then two was kind of the risk mitigation that needs to go into it because when you're leveraging a lot, you're borrowing a lot. Yes, it can leverage your returns, enhance your returns. But at the same time, like James and Tom have mentioned, you have to mitigate that, mitigate the risk. Because if you're over leveraged and then life happens, things go unplanned, you don't have other strategies, then uh, you could get yourself in trouble and, and be underwater. So with all this stuff, right, these are, these are tools, um, but you need to do the education, do the research. Uh, for yourself too, and put those mitigations in place. So any closing comments before we uh, wind up for the, for the week? Yeah, absolutely. Don't let your enthusiasm surpass your capability. That's when accidents happen in the military. That's when missteps happen in business. You will misstep. That's fine. When you're borrowing other people's money and you're so enthusiastic about a project that you fiddle the numbers a little bit and you make them look better than they really are, you might have a bad day. So be careful about that. And also realize this is not a risk-free environment. If you're borrowing other people's money, you have a responsibility uh, to make sure that project is going to be profitable, that your value-add strategy is sound. Take that seriously. I've seen that go the wrong way before, and your investors are counting on you to do the right analysis. Don't let your enthusiasm surpass your capability. 100%, James. Great way to wrap it up. Thanks again for joining us on Green Squad Chats. If you like it, please give us a five-star review. If you don't, reach out and tell us why so we can make it better. And we'll see you next time.